0: Welcome back, or welcome to the Single Track Podcast. I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and in this episode, we are talking with Peter Abraham, a content marketing expert who has worked with brands like Nike, ESPN, Red Bull, Lululemon, Hoka Nas Elite, and the LA Marathon. He joins the Single Track Podcast to talk about athlete sponsorship, fan creation, live coverage, and event management, among other topics in the trail running scene. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you by Rabbit. Use code SINGLETRACK30 at checkout before January 17th to get 30% off your next order there. After that date, use SINGLETRACK20 for 20% off any orders there for the rest of the year. This episode is also brought to you by Gnarly Nutrition. Use code SINGLETRACK20 at checkout for 20% off your next order there. Thank you so much for your support. And with that, let's get started. Peter Abraham, welcome to the Single Track podcast.
1: Hi, Finn. Thanks for having me.
0: It's great to have you here. And I got to say, you first came on my radar a few years back. And since then, I've been a huge fan of your blog, which we will link to in the show notes. And normally I'd say, you know, let's spend a few minutes going into your background. But you did make an appearance on the Free Trail podcast also in our space earlier last year. I thought you did an excellent job taking care of that. So I figure we'll just link to that in the show notes and encourage folks to listen there for a good setup, because I think there's so much to talk about in terms of themes. I'd love to talk about the athlete and team sponsorship worlds, the event and live coverage landscape lessons from other niche sports. So I know that that was a a mouthful there, but are you good with just getting right into the questions?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Let's go to work.
0: (laughs) Um, I want to start first with the athlete sponsor landscape, because you have quite a bit of experience mentoring pro athletes in the cycling and the road worlds. I guess first I'm wondering when you see athletes attempting to navigate like the worlds of media and branding and entertainment, what have been the biggest pain points that you've noticed?
1: Oh gosh, there's so many, you know, um, I will just start by saying, mentoring young professional athletes is a hobby for me. It's something I enjoy. It's never something I've been paid for, and um, I just want to help young people navigate their careers and maybe avoid some of the mistakes I myself have made. So, and that this work started for me about <clears throat> uh, maybe twelve years ago when I was at the LA Marathon and. Um, Devin Yanko was there trying to qualify for the Olympic trials and I just helped her at the starting line and carried her back to the finish and just was sort of helpful to her. And it was really that experience with her that, um, you know, kind of allowed me to understand that I really enjoyed that process. And so I've done that so much with both young professional runners and young professional cyclists. I think, you know what I, how I counsel um, young athletes, and it doesn't matter what sport they're in, honestly, is I get them to try and think about their who they are um, as a startup. And so, just like when I advise, as I have hundreds of startups in tech, healthcare, sports, like you got to have a point of view, you got to stand for something, you got to have a mission, mm-hmm. right? And they need to build a team around yourself. Like athletes need maybe an attorney, an agent, a coach, maybe a nutritionist. Uh, physical therapist, etc like and and it 's not so different from running your own business, and I think a lot of young professional athletes come out and they think that um, hey, they can just get good results and that'll they 'll build their kind of brand and their sponsorship around that, and that 's not actually true you know i mean if you're at the very very top and you are i don't know winning uh, olympic medals and setting world records okay maybe then you can let your results do the talking but other than that you really need to have a point of view you need to build a community because you know and and it depends on the sport you know it's a little bit different in cycling for instance where you just sign up for a team and if you want you can the team mostly handles a sponsorship not all of it but most of it they do a lot of the media. It's kind of like being on maybe an NFL team or an NBA team where you don't necessarily have to do all that work as a runner where there are more kind of freelancer uh you know entrepreneur types particularly like in trail running you really do have to kind of manage that all of that. And so that's the, the main thing that I want young athletes to to kind of focus on is like, hey, just have a point of view, have a mission. What do you stand for? Why should I be a fan of yours as opposed to somebody else's? And so I think that's the
0: first thing. I love what you said there about athletes thinking of themselves like startups. We had an agent on the podcast, Tyler Clements, who represents a few trail runners in our sport who said the same thing. And then I love what you said there about having a point of view as well, because I notice a lot of athletes in our sport who, when they start navigating relationships with brands, they believe that whatever they stand for is secondary to the brand that they're working with and that everything they believe in sort of has to be absorbed by whatever the ethos, the personality of that brand is. And I'm wondering, should that be reconciled? Like, Are there examples in your mind where a brand and the athlete that's working with that brand have been at odds, but it's worked out or like, do you need to be one there?
1: Okay. So ideally, I don't know if it's, you need to be one with your sponsors, but you need to be aligned. And that's another reason to have a point of view is so that, um, you can align with the right potential brand partners. So let's, Mm. let's agree that not every brand is right for every athlete or every event. So like, let's say, for instance, let's say you have, you you know, you're managing the Western States 100 would Marlboro be the right sponsor for that event? Of course not. So, (laughs) so, and, and so, um, definitely with, um, you know, professional runners, I, I can for sure, I can tell you there are instances where they are not aligned um, with their brand partner. So here, I'll give you an example. Like when Lauren Fleshman was, who I'm a huge fan of, who was um, sponsored by Nike, you know, she was and still is super into you know, her, her values and, and empowering women and inspiring people. And at that point, you know, we're going back like 12 years now before she signed with Wazelle, Nike, you know, there were all, there were me too issues at, within their company. They were, um, um, You know, there were a lot of problems with like if a female athlete got pregnant, they would be either their sponsorship would be reduced or their contract would be ended. There are a lot of problems going on there internally, most of which was not fully um, visible to the outside, but some things were. And so I think uh, and I could there's Lauren was not the only one. There were a lot of athletes who were just not aligned with Nike's values and
0: left. Mm. Are there any other good examples that come to mind of athletes, maybe particularly runners, since this is a running audience Mm -hmm. of pro athletes that have really embraced this role of being like a startup, having a point of view and over the course of their career, really executing it to fruition.
1: For sure. I would say like, I think Killian Jornet has done just an incredible job. I think like he he's great at creating content. He's great at sharing like his training and his travels. I mean, I would just say he's done an incredible job. And I would say going back, if we if we like rewind the clock, I gotta credit Dean Carnassus for actually <laughs> making, you know, Ultra and Trail Running a career and a household word. Like literally none of that stuff existed before him. You know, Scott Jurek was probably out there around the same time, but Dean is the one who like wrote a best-selling book you know, would, would, uh, or a number of books would appear on television shows. And like, I mean, I will tell you, like, you know, when I go back to like 2008, 2009, when I was at the LA marathon, like he would come to a marathon expo. Like I would host him at our expo. And I it was like, I don't know. Uh, you know, it was like Taylor Swift walked in or something. I mean, he was just a huge star. There'd, there'd be a massive line to get autographs. And so... I give him credit for the first ultra runner trail runner to really think that way.
0: You bring up Dean Carnassus and it reminds me, I feel the same way about David Goggins. I can't tell you how many people I yeah. have interacted with in the past three to four years who simply because of what David has done from a marketing standpoint, yes. and all his books and yeah. his appearances, they think he's the greatest ultra runner of all time, like based off of skill, based off of results. And uh, it's, it's shocking when, you know, myself or anyone else who's like in our sport communicates that he's kind of like a middle of the pack, upper yeah. middle of the pack runner in our sport. So, That's but right. bringing people in, which is awesome. Yeah. Um, one, this is a little bit tangential, but I think I saw this in a blog post you wrote a couple months ago and it relates more to like when athletes are first starting to dip into the sponsorship world, you've said that it's important that they ask the brands why they are sponsoring athletes, like why yes. they're looking to recruit five or 10 athletes for the next season. Can you spell out a bit more what you mean by that? Why that's such an important question to ask? Of
1: course. So, and I mean, this goes for any um, event, uh, you know, any kind of sports event, uh, whether it's a marathon a running event, I don't know, it, you name it. Anything where you're in a sponsorship situation, this could be a cycling team, could be a baseball team, could be a professional runner. You got to understand that a brand sponsoring you, there's no requirement that brands even sponsor any athletes or events. I mean, that is just one of like, let's say a hundred marketing channels that they have. So you can't assume that it's a foregone conclusion. Even if you're the NCAA champion or you've won Western States, you can't assume that you're going to get sponsored, whatever that means. Nobody, you know, um, nobody owes you that. What? You, how you got to think of it is you are solving a problem for a brand partner. They want to reach ultra runners. They want to reach people at events. They want to have you test out a new product, whatever it is. So the first question's got to be when you start. So And, and what I see, um, teams and athletes, the mistake I see them making all the time, I just saw this two months ago with a team I was talking to is they, they just start like firing away with like, Hey, here's my plan. No, here's what we're going to do. And like, they haven't even bothered to ask the the brand partner, why the discussion is happening and why the brand partner might even be interested in them. And so they're, they're like selling something over here that might be completely off target. So what I counsel athletes and and teams to do and events and sponsorship situations, don't commit to anything on the first call you get on the first call and you just ask like you write down have a list of like 15 questions you want to ask like Mm. hey what are you guys doing out there right now why are you interested in talking to me what problem could i as an athlete solve for you a year from now if you were to look back on our sponsorship and call it a success why would that be what would make this a successful partnership could you share with me any examples of good and bad partnerships or sponsorships that you've had in the past? Do you have any new product launches coming out that I, I would be a part of? What kind of content expectations would you have? Are you going to like send the film crew out to cover me? Or are you expecting me to make the content? And, you know, do you have a media budget assigned to any content we would create? Are you going to get it out there or do you expect me to, etc., etc.? Mm. And then after that first call, you at the end of it, you go, thank you very much. Can we schedule a time next week to circle back and I'll present you with a plan that addresses all of your concerns? And then you go away as an athlete or a team and you huddle with all your advisors and friends who could be helpful with this. And you go, hey, okay, here's what, that, 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 here's what they said. Here, they said they had a little bit of budget. That, 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 that. Let's scale a proposal that addresses all of their needs. And then you go back and you really, um, and, and then they'll be super impressed. And I've like, there's a pro cyclist, a gravel cyclist, Alexei Vermeulen, who I've helped a lot yes. with these things and he's been very successful and he's been really great at coming back with kind of like innovative, um, plans for his brand partners. Like, Hey, what if we do like an episodic TV show about, um, getting a bunch of beginning cyclists to Leadville for the Leadville 100 mountain bike race and see if they can finish it, you know, and we'll shoot along the way. And the brands were like, Oh my God, that's awesome. And that has since become like kind of its own thing. So anyway, so I, you know, I mean, it's not complicated, but, um, it, 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 it sounds so basic, but I just, it, a lot of athletes and brands don't, uh, don't do that.
0: I've been particularly impressed in the trail running world, uh, the number of pro athletes that have been willing to assume secondary roles beyond just you know participating in races like we just had a, a race here in in Texas the Bandera 100K this yep. past Saturday and yep. uh, you know two of the most important athletes in our sport Corinne Malcolm and Leah Yangling were very active in the live coverage for that race and they don't necessarily quote unquote have to do that but it it makes them like a more wholesome participant in the community. I feel like, and you know, whether they realize it or not, I'm sure they do. Uh, It helps a ton with just their overall value to the sport too. So I think it's interesting that more athletes are are getting the memo to be as multifaceted as possible.
1: You know, I think you're, you're bringing up a good point and I think it's like Dylan Bowman doing the um, Western States coverage, which I think is great. And I love watching. He's so knowledgeable. I will say related to what you're saying, I think if I zoom out and I look at athletes in a bunch of different sports, what I'm seeing is multidimensionality and, and, um, and I think it's really exciting. Like it's, so we're, we're kind of like reversing from Uber specialization, which is what it was getting to, <laughs> yeah. to like, like I'm a designator hitter, designated hitter in major league baseball. I don't, I never put a glove on. I don't go in the field. I, all I do is hit. And it only then in certain situations. And so um and, and so like here are some examples. And I wrote a blog post about this last year, like like the multidimensional athlete. Okay, so look at um, okay, well, Killian Jornet would be a great example in ultra running, obviously highly accomplished ultra marathoner, but also unbelievable ski mountaineer, you know, competitive kind of like world champion level, level schemo. Um, which is really interesting because ski mountaineering is going to be in the Olympics in 2026, the Winter Olympics. Okay. So let's look at, um, uh, surfing. I think one of Mm -hmm. the most popular surfers in the world right now is Kai Lenny, Red Bull sponsored athlete. He's doing big waves. He's doing small waves. He's on a foil. He's doing windsurfing. Like, Oh my God, he's doing so many different things. It's amazing. And even if you look at a sport like baseball, like the most mainstream American sport, the most exciting player in baseball, and I don't even think it's close, is Sho Otani, who's like one of the best pitchers in baseball and one of the best home run hitters in baseball simultaneously. Like he does both in the same season, in the same game even. I think it's super interesting. So there's a lot of that going on. Also in cycling with people like Tom Pitcock, World champion mountain biker from the Tokyo Olympics, winner of the hardest stage in the Tour de France last year, and a really, really top, top cyclocross racer. He's doing all the disciplines. They're all bikes. And I think that really, that kind of athlete really inspires people in a lot of ways. I think in some ways it's more relevant to those of us who are fans. And it's also just really interesting to watch.
0: One other slightly tangential question I want to ask you before we uh, get on to the next topic I saw a Twitter poll a couple of days ago, and of course there's nothing scientific about Twitter polls, but yeah. it was asking folks whether their purchasing decisions in the running market have ever been either consciously or subliminally influenced by sponsored athletes. And yeah. a lot of participants, overwhelmingly, the answer was no. Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Do you buy that or do you feel like, uh, athletes play a very important role in the buying journey? I, I don't buy it to be honest. I saw that same poll, and I feel like I feel like
1: it has a more of a subliminal effect than people think. You know, the, I I spend a lot of time thinking about the purchasing journey and for brands, and and you know, I, I believe now it's a very circular. Like, well, let's just say in running, you know, I heard about the Vaporfly from a friend. I watched in the Olympic trials in Atlanta that everyone was wearing them. I saw photos of these Nike athletes wearing them. I saw a Nike ad. I watched a video of Iliad Kipchoge trying to break two. There's like 20 different inputs. So it's easy to say, no, Iliad Kipchoge did not influence me to purchase that pair of Nike Vaporflies. But that was part of the whole story. And so I don't I don't fully buy that response. I think that response is a little bit out of context. Like it's trying to isolate one of 20 things and ask people if that one thing influenced. It's easy to say no to that. But yeah. I do think it it's part of a bigger story.
0: Right on. Transitioning just a little bit, and actually, I'm sure a lot of what you just mentioned there about the individual athlete in a sponsor relationship applies here as well, but you have awesome experience informally and formally acting as a CMO for events and, and teams like the LA marathon and Hoka Naz elite. Mm-hmm. I think there's been a lot of success with Hoka as elite, but in general, why do endurance sports teams have such a hard time creating fans in your opinion?
1: Oh gosh. Well, it varies by, um, sport and it varies by, you know, it's, um, there are, there are a lot of answers to that question. Okay, so like if we talk about running, a lot of the teams are so closely aligned with the brand that really it's like it's a brand activation. So you look at like Nike Bowerman or formerly the Nike Oregon Project, It just feel, and, and like those brands, those teams, like let's be honest, like you look at Bowerman, which has they've lost a lot of athletes recently, but they've they've been arguably the most successful professional running team in the United States in terms of mm. like, you know, from, you know, uh, middle distance through marathon or at least like from the 1500 through the marathon, they don't really do that much of their own marketing. They're not, they're like really a, a marketing exercise. I'm not criticizing them, but it's kind of like a marketing exercise for Nike. They're not really trying to build their own fans you, and you look at now like on athletics, which is doing a great job. I mean, they have great athletes. They don't even have their own website. They're like a web page on the on website. Yeah, And so um, a lot of teams, I, I mean, I would just say, I don't think they're trying that hard to build fans as a team. And I will say, That has been one thing that Ben Rosario and I have really, really tried to do with NAZ Elite is trying to actually build a team that has its own set of fans and its own media channels and is experimenting and trying and encouraging the athletes to build communities. And that's, you know, that has, that's been what we've tried to do from the beginning.
0: What have been some of the lessons in fan building so far for Hokenaz Elite? What has seemed to work so far?
1: Okay. So, and I mean, this goes, it's not just for Hoken as elite. It goes for any team or athlete, to be honest. I think the most important thing is to have a set of values, right? That you can connect, you can build a community around a mission and core values um, as opposed to just like, um, I don't know, a sponsor or an event or a set of results. That's not what builds really strong brand, uh, strong bonds. Okay. Between fans. So, We came up with a mission statement, which is like, um, you know, uh, train hard, race fearlessly, share every part of the journey. And, you know, so it's that part of sharing the journey that was differentiated from all the other running teams. And so, you you know, um, media and communication and content creation is truly like part of who we are. It's like built into the DNA of the team. And what that allows us to do is align with brand partners like Hoka that want that align with athletes like Steph Bruce, who are really good at that or are excited about that. And, um, align with, I don't know, events, nonprofit partners, um, et cetera, who are aligned with that mission. Just like when we were talking about athletes before, if you know who you are as a team, that quickly allows you to like move half the potential brand partners off the table because they're not aligned with who you are. And then for the, for the brands that are aligned with you, it's a way more, um, easy deal to make and a, and a, and a better fit.
0: We've had a pretty big debate in the trail running community recently about the merits of co-located trail running teams versus dispersed trail running teams in Mm -hmm. almost, every single brand in the space is completely dispersed. They might meet every quarter for a, a training camp or they might join each other at races to crew and, you know, be on the starting line together. How important, in your opinion, is the geographic anchor? Like over time in terms of building fans, does that need to be in place or can you build a fan base without the entire team being rooted together?
1: You know, it's a great, uh, it's a, it's a great question. In terms of the professional running teams, most of not ultras, but in terms of like marathon and shorter distance teams, most of them are located in one place and they have practices together. Okay, so we have that in, um, you know, uh, Flagstaff, you have uh, Hanson's Brooks up in De- Detroit, you have... um um you know, Joe Bossard's and Coburn's group, mostly yep. in Colorado, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's, for most athletes, again, not all, because there's some people that love being a lone wolf. And I would say probably <laughs> in ultra, this is more true, like just by nature of like, hey, I'm an ultra runner. I like being out for hundred <laughs> miles by myself. You're probably more likely to be okay just training by yourself every day. <laughs> But most professional running teams, I believe, get the best performances out of meeting every day for practice and being all together. And what I have noticed as the elite, and I'm sure this applies to other teams, is certain athletes are very much inspired by training with other athletes who are really, really um, training hard and super focused. Like there's a there's a, um, you know, an inspirational impact um that ripples through the team. And so um, you know, so when you have like kind of an inspirational leader type athlete, which every team kind of needs a couple of those. Yeah. You no, know, I mean it's just like an NBA team or anything else. You know, you have different everybody fulfills kind of different roles. They're a role player, they're a leader, they're a point scorer, they're a, they're a um, you know, they pass the ball and get assists, whatever. It's not too different on a professional running team. I think it would be interesting to see um, um, an ultra slash trail team that was really focused on being together. You have seen the Coconino Cowboys a little bit, yes. Flagstaff. It looks like – although it looks like Jim has moved to France. Like is he there permanently now?
0: It's an, I think it's an ongoing experiment. I want to say he's given himself two to three years. He really wants to embed himself in those Alps because the goal is to win UTMB, to be the first American to ever win UTMB. So I want to say he is there until it's mission accomplished or at least mission fully attempted. Right. Um, Okay. Good point. But I've also seen some posts on Instagram saying, you know, I'm missing Flagstaff. I'm missing the States. I'm missing that community. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It just, you know, there's a lot of people in the trail community that, you know, we've had Robert Murke on the podcast, for example. He's the trail team manager for Adidas Terex. He has really come down on the side of like, it is good to have a dispersed team, we can make it work. But when I think about it from like a psychological, sociological standpoint, we're the sum of our immediate environment, right? Like the five or 10 people we most closely associate with on a day to day basis. Yes. And it seems to me you're leaving a lot of chips off the table being a lone wolf. And I know that ultras are weird and there's a certain personality, but I wouldn't imagine that we're immune. I mean, we're all human. So it's, I I don't know.
1: Yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. I would love to see somebody like pull together a team like that as an experiment and, and, and put them in one place.
0: There was an article that you and Dylan talked about, you know, the, the of sports and we have been talking a lot in the trail running space about how much we need to improve coverage in our sport. Yeah. But I think it's also important to understand this from the top down too. And this question is like multifaceted, but do you think the major sports are already doing live coverage event coverage correctly? So is it like just a question of replicating what's already out there? I'm curious what your take is on this.
1: Um, I You know, I'm not sure. Clearly there are, um, You know, sports like, I don't know, the NFL and the NBA that have invested huge sums of money in um, broadcast. I'm still not sold that the mass broadcast model is the best way to view sports. Like so many of us now, there's so much context around a game now between data and stats and conversation. And then, of course, the video of the game. So let's say... For instance, like I went to UCLA, I'm watching a UCLA f- football game, okay? Mm. I might have the game on the TV, and then I'm toggling between tabs on Chrome between maybe Twitter so I can see live conversation, maybe using a hashtag, and like ESPN.com looking at the live box score so I can const- – like how many yards does that rusher have? What are the quarterback stats right now? so you've got like game conversation stats game conversation stats
0: yes and it's
1: the same way when i watch um a european bike race i'm watching the live feed on like you know gcn and then i'm you you on bike racing of course you go to um pro cycling um stats their live feed for live data um and then you might have conversation somewhere else so i feel like i wish there was like kind of a Um, dashboard kind of user experience for some sports where you could kind of see it all on one screen, or maybe we've just moved on and and now it's just everything is like a two screen experience. You know, you have your phone and maybe that's just how it is. So, um, uh, so uh, honestly there's, there's no one broadcast that I think, um, is amazing to be honest. And I think it's certainly not the Olympics. And, and I I think broadcast television, which is, you know, the big sports deals are they're starting to go to Amazon and Apple now, but in terms of like NBA and NFL, they're mostly tied to broadcast or cable television, which wants you looking at that one big screen. So you're looking at their ads. They don't want to distract you from the ads, which is how they make their money with data and other things. So I think it's, that's a viewing experience that is optimized for ad sales, which is not optimal for the viewer.
0: Maybe for this next question, the assumption is that growth is good, that growing the sport, reaching new audiences is a good idea. So that's the assumption. Within that context, do you think that the route to creating new fans to growing the sport is by creating a really good product inside the quote unquote bubble for the hardcore fans and just seeing all these people having a great time and people getting curious or are there tactics that you should apply outside the quote unquote bubble to grow?
1: Okay. Great question. How I think about, um, this question and building fans and communities around, and it could be, um, a a brand, it could be an athlete, it could be a sport, could be an event. I think about it in concentric circles. So here's an example, like I once used to work at Manduka, the yoga brand, which was, um, you know, like they're like really beautiful high end, like the Porsche of yoga mats. (laughs) And we thought of our customers, like if you look at the concentric circle model, like at the very inside, the center of the target was yoga teachers because they're practicing every day they're teaching, they're evangelizing, they're, you know, um, inspiring new yoga practitioners. Like we got to have them on, in the, in in our tent. Right. Then if you go one out from that, you're like, okay, we got to have like somebody who's like practicing five days a week, just really into yoga. We got to have them. Okay. Outside of that would be somebody who like practices one, one or two times a week. They like yoga. Um, but Hey, if they have a yoga mat, we want them. And then on the uh, farther outside, would be like somebody who's maybe just athletic. Maybe they're a runner. They haven't even started practicing yet, but when they buy their first mat, we want it to be a Manduka. So we would look at those circles. So I think you could look at the same thing with ultra running you and you have to go from the inside out, right? You have to like ultra running. You do have to have the hardcore fans in there at the beginning, right? You've got it. You got to speak to them. You can't skip over and try and go mass market. And I'll give you a cautionary tale. Yeah, would be Skechers, the running, when they went to running shoes, they tried to like skip over all of that and just go straight to the mass market. Like, Hey, that's a big market. We don't need the hardcore running fan, right? We can just go straight to like, you know, somebody who walks into one of our shops. And I just think it was a a total flop. And Mm. for all of these reasons is, and like, you have to do the work to build a community on the way out there.
0: One more question on this front. And I'm not sure if you said this on Twitter or it was in one of your blog posts, but you've said that technological progress is outpacing storytelling when it comes to improvements or advancements in live coverage, event stuff. Why do you think this is?
1: Well, it's a good question. You know, I think that um, like the technical leaps that we've seen just like in the last 20 years from, you know, the smartphone now, now we're in to, you know, AI and all these things. Obviously, the, the, the things that have happened with social media, a bunch of them negative related to our mental health and so forth. Like technology is advancing incredibly quickly now, unbelievably quickly. However, to tell a good story, you still need craft. So if you look as an example, like you look at like making music, OK, like it's so easy. Anybody can go on like, you know, GarageBand or any one of some online program and make music in their bedroom. But you still need craft. You still need to know how to write a grid song. You still need to um, ideally know how to play an instrument, etc. So. Even though the technology has gotten so much greater and democratized it, uh, making music which is a good thing, it doesn't mean that there's more good music. You could say the same with filmmaking with YouTube. It's so easy to make your own film, put it on YouTube. Tons of filmmakers have started there like Casey Neistat for example, that's awesome. And yet it's not like there there's so much more good storytelling and I would say as it results to like as it relates to video, I just saw Avatar 3 with uh, my daughter two weeks ago when she was here for Christmas. The technology, you know, the CG technology, you know, they can kind of create anything, any shot angle. Like the problem is like there's no discipline. They had no discipline. There were no guardrails on the process of making that film. And it was just bloated. It was almost three and a half hours. It went on and on. And you just felt like, In a lower tech world, that film probably would have been a lot better. It would have been shorter. They would have had to get through scenes more quickly. And I just think it would have been a crisper, much better film with less technology.
0: Moving on a bit. Uh, I I think you've talked about this in the cycling world, but I, I have a feeling it applies to trail as well. You've talked about a need to build more of a quote unquote season long narrative for the sport of cycling on behalf of fans. Can you talk about what this means and I guess selfishly why it might be important for a sport like trail running as well?
1: Well, what you have in cycling and trail running is you have like a whole series of like kind of uh, isolated events, you know, in trail running could be hard rock. It could be any one of the like sky running or like European events like UTMB. It could be Western States. Um, And so they're all, and, and cycling is kind of the same. You have the the Grand Tours, you have Perry Roubaix, you have Flanders, Milan San Remo, and it's not clear if there's a, like an overarching narrative arc to the season. And I think, as humans, I think we are wired to understand classic three act story structure, like a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, the end being the the conflict resolution. So. Um, And and you can see with certain pro sports, like let's say NFL playoffs are about to start right now, like, okay, the whole season builds, then you have the playoffs, then you have the Super Bowl, and it's over. Like it's a pretty like defined, clear arc. You could say the same thing for the NBA Um, and even um, the PGA Golf Tour, which has some huge seemingly disconnected events like the British Open and the Masters. There is kind of a season-long champion at the end. And I I guess I wish there was some kind of narrative for, you know, cycling really doesn't – I think technically there are some awards at the end of the season, but nobody cares about them. And the same with – honestly, with any kind of running, not just trail running, but, you know, marathoners like, okay, you got New York, you got Boston, Chicago, London, the World Marathon Majors. I I just – um, I think the world marathon majors concept was okay, but I don't think people ever really understood it. And I don't think it really caught on with people because it was a two year long story. And uh, anyway, so I, I, just like, I wish there was some other, uh, you know, some narrative story arc that was more than a, uh, an event or two.
0: Well, I was going to say, because in trail running, and it might be similar in, in your native sports as well. It's 2023. We have multiple brands, multiple events vying to be the championships for the exact same distances on the exact same terrains in the exact same regions of the world. They're trying to recruit all the best athletes. Do you think in that type of scenario where there's just a flooded market where everyone's trying to rise to the top winner take all is ultimately necessary for a coherent narrative to emerge?
1: I don't know that it's necessary, but I do think it would be very helpful. I mean, look, here in cycling, there's a a real-time example happening right now. It's called the Lifetime Grand Prix. Lifetime owners of Leadville 100 trail race and mountain bike race. Um, It's Lifetime Fitness. They own health clubs all over the country. So they've bought a bunch of gravel races and some mountain bike races and connected um, six or seven of them into a season-long series with Mm. $250,000 in prizes. And, um, I think last year was the first year. So you got points at each race. Um, you got to throw out your worst race. Um, you know, I, I think it was, I would call it for their first year, I would call it moderately, moderately successful. Then there are problems though. For instance, they went in this year, they expanded the number of athletes. They did not expand the number of prize money, the amount of prize money. As it turns out, it's a huge investment in money to get to. Imagine if in trail running, you had to get to UTMB, you know, um, you know, Leadville, JFK 50, you know, Javelin 100, Western States. Like you had to get to all these different, races and it was a whole year and like basically required you to spend most of your year in the United States, like that, um, disincentivizes European or foreign runners who can't like just live here for a year, for six months or, or travel back and forth and be flying all the time. So I think, I don't think the second year's um, participants, I think it's actually not as strong of a field as was last year. So it's an ongoing experiment and it's not simple. And in the same way you can imagine if some, let's say Red Bull came in and said, Hey, we're going to sponsor the ultra running world series. And we're going to yeah. pick half a dozen events around the world. You're going to score points at everyone. And at the end, the winner is going to get $50,000 or $100,000 or something male, female. It It would be challenging to kind of actually get people to go to all those events. It's not easy. So.
0: It reminds me, we have had a couple of interesting years in trail and ultra running, welcoming big brands like Ironman into our space. In your experience, like with gravel cycling in particular, because I feel like gravel has interesting parallels to what's happening in trail. Has, I'll use the phrase, hyper professionalization of event management been a net good in that space? Like, do you think knowing what you've seen so far in gravel, you can assuage some fears about these types of takeovers in our world?
1: There are some things like in gravel racing, safety is a huge issue. You know, you got, you know, on bikes, sometimes you're going down a hill at 50 miles an hour or more. And so like safety, you know, people can die and safety is a huge issue. And I think there needs to be much Safety needs to be taken much more seriously, and I think the professionalization of event management would help that. I don't think it's there yet. I still don't think events are safe enough, and I think a lot of gravel races, honestly, are ticking time bombs, and it's only a matter of time until there's some kind of massively catastrophic injury or problem. I think Mm. they're not safe enough. So I think there are upsides that that, that could come with pro- professionalization. On the downside, when a corporate interest takes over a bunch of um, races and their sole role is to monetize them, I think a lot a lot of times the soul gets sucked out of the race and it becomes it whatever um, sort of like quirky, interesting, unique kind of vibe um, a race has can get um, just kind of sanded down, all the rough edges can get sanded down and it becomes generic and bland. And I think that is a huge um, potential problem with um, corporate owned events. And I'm, I'm so there's, there's an interesting, there's upside that corporate ownership can bring and there's also downside.
0: You used the word soul there, and I'm thinking about this in real time, but why does it seem like in endurance sports, we seem to care more about the discussion of the soul and the values of the sport more than sports like basketball, baseball, and football? Because I've personally been in both worlds and it never seemed to me like, for example, the guys in my local YMCA rec league cared as much about their relationship with the NBA and how that was affecting their sort of welfare in this community, like myself as a middle of the pack runner does with Ironman taking over UTMB, for example?
1: I think um, there's a fundamental difference between participation sports, any kind of running, cycling, triathlons. And when you look at um, you know, stick and ball sports, particularly at the pro level, NBA, NFL, major league baseball, hockey, those are sports as entertainment. So that's more like, you know, watching a Disney film, I would say, and the athletes are more like actors in the film, even though it is a real live thing. Yeah. Most of the people, you know, if you, you look at a, um, a Denver Broncos game, I would say 99% of the people in the stands are not playing football themselves on the weekends, unless there's Mm. a few like high school or, you know, Pop Warner players there. No skin in the game. No skin in the game. Participation sports are a completely different thing because – most of the fans of like any kind of running event like we run also we're doing that we've done a marathon we know how hard that feels like i think you just take way and you go to those events you're part of it you're one of the athletes you're in it and so i just think it's a completely different thing and honestly it's almost not even comparable you know it's
0: I gotta say though, I've been to and I'm I'm a Boston guy. I've been to a couple Boston Celtics games, and yeah. I can confirm there are people sitting in those stands that believe that they're cheering and uh, they're clapping and they're pointing at the bench. That led to a victory or a loss.
1: That, that's true. You know, <laughs> I I mean, the, the, the another thing is like you, okay, you're talking about the Celtics. There is so much history. With the, Just look at the Celtics, forget any other team, like going back, the parquet floor, Larry Bird, Bob Quasi, Robert Parrish, you know, like there's so much history and tradition and that team has become like, you just look at like the tribal affiliation with the Celtics that goes back, I don't know what, 60, 70 years. I mean, I still vividly remember Going in the late '80s to the to see a Laker game, Lakers versus the Celtics, Magic against Larry in the absolute prime, prime, prime time of that rivalry. I'll never forget it. It was unbelievable. And so there is like kind of a tribal, um, it, you know, um, identification that you probably don't get um, so much in. You know, participation, maybe with like the Boston marathon or the New York marathon or events that have really been around for a long time, but generally it's a, it's a different thing.
0: I want to hopefully cover two more topics with you here. The first, uh, there's some data out there that suggests that we hit quote unquote peak competitive sports back in 2012 yep. and that younger generations don't identify as closely with classic values from bygone sporting eras this is probably a self-serving question, but how do media companies, announcers, operators, people like myself need to adjust in the ensuing years?
1: So, um, you know, I, I spent yesterday morning riding my bike with Steve Beckett, the chief marketing officer of Zwift, the online training program. And we, we spent 20 minutes talking about this topic. And I think, You know, there are a lot of uh, sports that were really popular with um, baby boomers and some of the millennials. I'm talking about golf, tennis, running marathons, traditional bike racing, triathlons, a lot of sports that peaked in like 2012, 2014, and then started trending gradually down. Um, You could probably look at the pandemic is having resuscitated a couple of those, but like tennis didn't come back. Pickleball did. And so what are the common themes? Like if you zoom out and trying to go like, what are the patterns that are really like, what's the cause of that? I think there are a few things. First of all, I think there's generational change. I think um, younger people are more motivated by social than fitness So like running a marathon in under three hours is not as important as just getting out and seeing your friends every week. And so like in 2015 and 2016, I started going to a lot of like these night run crews and like November project. And a lot of, um, a a lot of these, like out here in LA we have Koreatown run club, we have blacklist. We have like, uh, and I just started like really trying to understand that. And I would, you know, the average age was like 27, Um, They were multicultural. Everything was free. Um, You know, Blacklist would run like downtown LA. Monday night, 10 o'clock at night was their biggest running, weekly running event. 10 o'clock at night in downtown, not a running area at all. On a Monday night, three or 400 people would show up to run like three or four miles and stop and look at art along the way. It, It was more fun than most 5Ks that you'd go to that you'd spend 40 or 45 bucks on. And when I walked around and I heard, I would be listening to conversations. People were like, yeah, I can't really afford to run a 10K every weekend. So they love running. They love being fit, but they really love the social component. They don't want to spend the money on like a honestly kind of basic running event that doesn't offer that much besides a bib and a time. So definitely I saw a lot of that. I also have seen that 2012 year. That's when... Um, the, the iPhone was really taking off in terms of social media. That's on like Facebook got mobile figured out. That's when Instagram really took off was 2012. So you saw like the rise of social media and sharing experiences online as like more traditional experiences went down. You saw the decrease of, um, the attention span. Um, yes. You know, so there are a lot of things that contributed to this, but it's a real thing. And these things are changing at the same time. I would say there are more people doing sports now than any time you know, ever, I I think it's important to not like be pining for some other era, you know, days gone by. And like, I hear it in the cycling community, like, you know, middle-aged white dudes like me, like complaining about what you, what happened to road racing. And the fact is there are more People riding and racing bikes now Any time in history you have for the adult population, you have gravel racing is massive and still exploding. For the young population, you have the NICA High School Mountain Bike Racing League. That's 30,000 kids in 30 states racing mountain bikes. I mean, that's just unbelievable. It's the largest grassroots bike racing program in the world. You have e-bikes. You have so much going on. Now you have all these um, open streets events like here in LA, we have Cyclavia where they'll close down like six miles of streets downtown and 20,000 people will come out with their bikes. So there's actually a tremendous amount going on with outdoor sports and activities. It's just different. So it's, it's okay to like just accept that a new generation is doing things in a different way. It's yeah. different from what we might have grown up with. That's fine. Let's just embrace that.
0: This is more a comment. I mean, it's probably a history of sports question, which is like out of scope here, but it makes me wonder what you're saying. Is there, I'll use the phrase cyclical prominence. Is there, is there cyclical prominence for values like competition versus collaboration or has collaborate or has competition always reigned supreme until now? And like, we're having this totally unprecedented change in values because of like the technology and the ways we can collaborate there. No, I think for
1: sure it's cyclical. All these things are cyclical. I mean, look at like, um, you know, look at just how people work now. Like, you see the younger generation whose parents are maybe baby boomers, they don't want to work as hard as the baby boomers because they've seen their parents like kill themselves working and like, why? What's the point? Why should I spend more time enjoying their life? I totally respect that. I think in terms of competition, there's so many forms of competition and I don't think, of course, there's still a large number of people who are competitive, but it's it could be in different ways. You could, competition could be on Strava. Like I'm just going to try and beat my own PRs every month on Strava. That's fine. That's another form of competition and technology has enabled that. So I for sure think it's cyclical and it's generational and there are all kinds of things that influence it, whether it's technology or... Um, just cultural things in general. And I think that's totally fine.
0: Last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up, I love talking about placemaking and geography. I have a theory right now that uh, due to climate change, we'll see a massive diaspora from the Western U S back to the East coast. East coast will be cool again. The reason I preface all this is because you've talked about Bentonville being the center of bike culture Mm -hmm. in the U S and I still think there is an opportunity in the trail world for, some place in the U S to really become synonymous with trail. What were the factors in, in Bentonville's case that led it to become the center of bike culture in the U S?
1: Yeah. So I've done like, uh, you know, I've spent about three or four weeks in Bentonville over the last couple of years. I'm fascinated by it. Um, so that's the home of Walmart. Um, historically their head offices have been there, but honestly spread all over in different buildings. You don't really, there's no campus yet. Then you had, um, two of the grandsons of Sam Walton, the founder, uh, Tom and Stuart Walton, who were in their early forties. They were crazy bike freaks. One went to university of Colorado, one went to Northern Arizona in Flagstaff and they started building out, um, bike, you know, single track bike trails there, bike infrastructure. And then it started start picking up steam. This is like 10 years ago. And then they would bring in like the best trail builders from around the country. And the, the trail system is unbelievable. They're up to like 1200 miles in the whole region around Northwest Arkansas. And then what happened is events started coming there. Oh, somebody will put on a gravel race there. People started moving there for bike culture Bike brands started putting offices there. All of a sudden there were like a bunch of like bike themed cafes Has a bike shop over here and a coffee place over there. Now the Walmart um, leadership of Walmart, the brand has gotten excited about it. They're building bike lanes all over the city and all over the region on streets They're halfway done with the brand new 350 acre Walmart campus. It's going to, they want to make it the most bike friendly workplace in the world. It's really incredible. So bike culture has taken over an entire region. Mm. I've never really seen anything like that. And I think, I think it could happen in running. And in fact, I've been thinking about this and talking about this a lot with Ben um, Rosario and AZ elite. I think Flagstaff has become the de facto Distance running capital of the United States, I would say of the professional distance runners in the United States, probably three quarters of them either live there or train there at least sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I was encouraging Ben, I was in Flagstaff last month, and I was encouraging Ben to like, get together with the mayor and start to like, actually establish that and memorialize that. And like, there should be like a sign as you enter the city limits, like running capital of North America or something. And there should be more running camps there and there should be more of a brand presence there. And I think, you know, that this stuff, I'll tell you though the lesson is this stuff doesn't happen by accident. And if you look at like ski areas that are big magnets for skiing those things were built. There was investment. The hotels were built. There were lifts. There was marketing. Like Those things all happened intentionally. And so I think it's mm-hmm. going to be the same. It certainly was intentional in Bentonville, and it could be intentional with um, Flagstaff, but somebody has to own the process and lead it.
0: When you think about the Walmart family providing a you know, mass influx of capital to making you know, the biking yeah. infrastructure possible in Bentonville, or even, for example, Phil Knight from Nike, making Eugene what it is and you know, yeah. redesigning the arena there and for the world championships. Do you think, regardless of like the politics of that situation, do you think it's a no, like a pretty noble endeavor a worthwhile endeavor to find like a a wealthy person for your sport or for your cause to help get things off the ground?
1: I, I do. I mean, I think that's great, but I don't think anybody should wait around and expect that that's going to happen. That's like a unicorn. You got to get lucky kind of thing. To get, you know, a place or certain resources in place, it, it does take money and time and investment. And I think there are other ways to do it. I, last year, I happened to be at a conference with the mayor of Austin, Texas, Steve Adler, who's just termed out. But he had gotten a $420 million bond issue done in the state of Texas only to support running and walking and bicycling infrastructure in the city of austin so like Mm. bike paths and running trails and that kind of thing it was unbelievable it was so inspiring and so he did it with a bond issue he did not need the walton family to get that established in austin and make austin a better place and i do think now with e-bikes coming along i think infrastructure you know, like urban infrastructure is absolutely critical. And if you think of places where you go to run, where they have like great running trails, like imagine when you go to New York and you run in Central Park, which is like, I would say my favorite place to run in the world, just because it's so Mm. magical, that six mile loop around Central Park, surrounded by tall buildings, it's incredible. And so I think that is going to be an increasingly important um, topic, uh, and the, and the cities that in the places that invest in that kind of infrastructure are going to win because people are going to want to move there, especially in the era of remote work.
0: Awesome. Well, Peter, I cannot thank you enough for the time, the wisdom you've imparted. This has been such a pleasure. I'll make sure to link to all of your social media, the blog and the show notes before we go. Are there any calls to action that you have for the audience you'd like to leave them with?
1: Um, no, I don't think so. I think everybody should just exercise outdoors more and whether it's running or riding their bike or whatever it is that brings them joy, I think we should all just do more of it.
0: Thanks for listening. Before we sign off, if you are a fan of the show, please consider supporting us with a rating and a review in your podcast player, a donation on Patreon, or the use of our sponsor discount codes in the show notes. We really appreciate your support. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, I'm your host, Finn Melanson, and you have been listening to the Single Track Podcast.